Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and over the course of the podcast, we'll be reviewing the first weekend of Autumn Internationals with the help of Shane Williams, Tina Delport, Nigel Owens is back to answer all your rugby laws questions, plus Phil Kaplan updates us on the Rugby League World Cup. But first, I'm joined in the studio by a man who is often talked about, but gets little chance to talk on his own behalf, but he can do now. It's Was and England fly half, Danny Cipriani. Danny, how are you? I'm fantastic, Brian. Thank you very much. Good. Um, we've got lots of questions, and seemingly with you, we can't avoid you uh, on a personal basis. So let's start uh, with that. One from uh, Jamie Lindsay. Any regrets going to Toulon? I'm not going to Toulon. No, no, no regrets on that front whatsoever. Um, I think everything is is part and parcel of of whatever journey you choose to take, and I've learned a lot of lessons on the way. And I feel I'm in the best position now to perform the the best I can uh, when I'm back from this injury, and hopefully, you know, drive wasps um, as far up the table as I can go. Do you know where you stand with Eddie Jones? Yeah, I think Eddie's been very. Um, he's uh, he's very. Open his conversations with the wider squad. Um, I haven't spoke to him um, recently uh, th- through the injury or through whatever reason. Um, but previously, he had been in contact, and you know whether you're in the periphery or the wider squad, his, his diligence is excellent in that. Because I think you know every coach realizes they need to have their squad, then a wider squad, and things like that in case of injury. So yeah, I, I knew where I stood with that, and you know it's uh, it's just good to watch the, the boys get a win at the weekend and and uh, uh, perform. And looking forward to watching them against Australia. This is going back a long, long way, but I'm sure it's, you know, not still fresh, but you you remember it. When you got that terrible ankle injury, it was a bad injury. Mm. Did you come back too quickly? Uh, not physically, um, not at all. I, I, I was very blessed to have an unbelievable physio um, with, with Kevin Nidlow, um, with the WAS team, with Prav, um, who's the Welsh physio now. Uh, so I was very fortunate to come back from that injury in, in, in the shape that I did. Um, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't so much the, the physical side of things. It was just more the, the the change in how the media went from having a good game to it being relayed as an average game. And you know, previously before the injury, a good game would be an excellent game. And sometimes that's how it swings. And you just got to ride those waves as it was. And um, you know, I would previously wasn't very good at handling it. It would get to me. It would frustrate me. I was twenty, twenty one. You know, living my life in this you know spotlight as it were. And then you know, as you get older, you just you just get learn to deal with it and um, live with it a lot better. And I feel like that's uh, the position I've been in for like the last five years, and haven't had a, a, a full sniff for England yet. And you know, probably could, could I play better? Of course I could. So um, you know, that's down to to what I've got to do when I get back out there um, soon. Was there no one around at that time who could have uh, helped give you advice or alleviate the pressure? Because you know, at that age, it's very difficult when you suddenly have. The not just the sporting media, but the wider media in this country, uh, you know, looking at you in detail. Yeah, I, th- I think I was in quite a unique position because there wasn't many, if any, rugby players before that had had that, you know, that scrutiny in that fashion. Uh, and, you know, I had it from 17, 18 years old, moving onwards, and it just seemed to, you know, everything was fine. I just, I just rode it as it was. And, and then when I got the injury and came back from it, and then you didn't quite play as well, you know, two games after a, a broken ankle, and then they're getting on your back. And 
things like that, you know, I, I feel like I just probably wasn't best handled in a position to handle it. I didn't have people to be able to, you know, advise me in that because I guess it was quite a unique position to, to be in. Could I have handled my relationship with Martin Johnson a bit better? Of course I could have. I was young. Um, I was in a squad and I expected things to be like it was at Wasps and to be given the reins and I wasn't. And it was just a learning curve and a learning lesson for me. And that was something, um, you know, I took away from and, you know, from, you know, squads that I've been in recently over the last five years. You know, I've adapted a lot better in those situations, whether it be at Sale or under Stuart Lancaster or, you know, at Wasps, whatever it may be. And I've tried to, you know, do the best I can in each, each environment. Um, let's look to the weekend's uh, internationals. Of course, we'll, we'll start with England. 21-8 against Argentina. It was, at best, an uneven uh, performance. And there are various reasons, I think, for that. But what about the, the general thing? You know, England seemed to me to have a, a difficulty in you know, starting series. They get better and uh, they pr- progress. But is there any reason why... Um, for this game, England should have been, you know, undercooked or not? Uh, I don't know if it's undercooked, but I, I just think, you know, the expectation that the players and the coaches put on themselves is high enough as it is and it's exactly as it should be. I think, you know, when, you know, you start a series, you say how teams are a little bit rusty going into it or, you know, not quite completing the sets that they want to be com- completing. You know, these things happen. I can guarantee that this weekend against Australia, you're going to see a, a remarkably different you know, England outfit, um, you know, with, with the intensity, with, um, you know, the execution, you know, with their desire to play because, you know, they're playing against Australia who are currently perhaps, you know, top two form teams in the world. And, you know, I think it's, uh, you're going to see the best of England this weekend and they're definitely going to rise to the occasion as, you know, all those big, big, big game players have. Uh, well, I wrote this, but you're in a much better position to, uh, to comment. Um, sometimes... A player's intrinsic value is not always felt till they're not there. Uh, Owen Farrell wasn't there for reasons of being rotated and, 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 and what have you. But it seemed to me that without him, things just didn't uh, click as they normally. And maybe it was a bit too much to expect Henry Slade just to step in and form the sort of uh, fluid relationship that Farrell has with uh, Ford. But what was frustrating, I think, probably for... For, for Slade and, and for people watching, was the, the, some of the mistakes he made were ones that you know are very basic and you know you see him week in, week out for extra making those passes. You know, not going you know, in front of players or, or, or on the floor. Did we expect too much from that? I don't know if it's expectation because, like I said, his expectation of himself will be high enough as, as, as it is anyway because he, he, he's a very, very talented player who can do you know, every single skill that you need to do in rugby. Uh, I think... As a game like that progressed, I think, does the frustration keep building up and do you keep trying things a little bit more? Um, you know, you put him in that situation again on a, on the next Saturday, I guarantee you'll get a different outlook um, or a different performance from, from Henry Slade, I think, also as well. Yeah, it's tough to feel someone, you know, someone's shoes as Owen Farrell, you know, a world-class player who has done what he's done over the last couple of years. So I think, you know, I don't know if he would have felt the, the weight of expectation on that, but... You know, I can I can assure that you know, like I said, whoever's playing this weekend is going to be a, a much more assured England team. Yeah, the um, the the Farrell contribution, not just tactically, you know, but psychologically. I just wonder um, when Eddie Jones is looking at the team against Australia. Who knows? That, will Mike Brown be fit? Unlikely, but even if he is, the composition of back three. It's one of the areas which has not been sorted out. And there are lots of players who at times, you know, have put their hands up. If you had a free reign, um, what would you be looking to uh, play as a back three against Australia? I I think, not disrespect, but I think people misunderstand the importance that Mike Brown brings to England. I think, you know, people talk about other players that might be more exciting, more, you know, more speedy, whatever it may be. But, you know... I. I can assure you that he's one of the first names on that team sheet because he's been so consistent in his performances. He might not do some of the, the flashy things that some people want the fullback to go and do, but does he always take his high balls? Yes. Is he, is he a, a threat from the back? Yes. Is he got an assured clearance kick? You know, for sure. I think he, you know, he, he gets a bit of a, a hard rap in that way and he's probably been the most successful um, English fullback or you know, he's up there with the greatest English fullbacks of all time, but because he's playing right now, we don't quite appreciate what he brings. Is he going? Once he retires or stops playing for England, will people then say, 
what a great fullback he was. Um, I think then the rest of the back three, you've got explosive, dynamic players with, you know, Rocco Daguni, um, Elliot Daly, Anthony Watson. You know, Johnny May might be back. I'm guessing from his um, from his injury. If he is, he's had great form at Leicester. So I think you know, I think they're in a very exciting position. And like in all positions in this squad, there's three, four players that could step in and fill a role. And I think it's uh, exciting to see the combinations that that will be provided this weekend. And you know, I think there might be a few changes. Um, and it will be uh, interesting to see. Where do you think, um, uh, or, and where does he think, uh, his uh, best, uh, Elliot Daly's best position is? Uh, he's only ever played him on the wing, so I'm guessing that's that's where he presumes uh, Elliot's best position is. Uh, you know, and I, it's uh, he's ended up being a British lion on the left wing, and he's he's been very competent and played. You know, I think Elliot's someone who his work rate is incredible. Um, you know, he runs as quick in the in the. 79th minute as he does in the first minute and you know what you're going to get with him you know he's a very talented kid who can kick kick the ball a mile out of hand or for goal so he's a great weapon to have in the team um, a second option at fullback yeah p- perhaps but it is fullback's quite a specialist position in terms of you've got to play there to to do it it's tough to be able to just be thrown in um not having played there, he has played there before, but he's not been been there for a while. Whereas wings slightly different in in that fashion. But you know, I'm not picking the team, so it'll be uh, interesting to see this weekend what what he decides. I looked at the way that England played. I mean, the Argentinians had a lot of ball, and they were very good at keeping it. I mean, unfortunately for them, the a they missed loads of kicks at goal, so they never got in scoreboard position to put pressure under England. But also, they just didn't have that mercurial player who could un- unlock defences. Um, if England allow Australia to have uh, so much ball, they'll, they'll, they'll be in trouble because Australia do have that. And I just wonder, you know, when you're looking at forwards to take the ball on, you're stood at fly half and you can see what's developing. You know, what is it you want your forwards to do, you know, from the set piece? How far... Do you want them to go beyond the gain line? What sort of ball do you want in what sort of areas? To answer that, first of all, I think, you know, against Argentina, they probably knew, you know, the team that they were coming up against. They'd done their homework. So sometimes being without the ball is sometimes better than being with it. So we don't quite know what the tactics were there. Were they, was it to kick long to put them under pressure and let them tire themselves out so they've never really got a shot to get back within the game? Um you know, I think it's disappointing for Argentina's point of view that they can't pick all the best players in the world to play for them. I think that made a huge difference. I think Marcelo Bosch starts for them every single time, but you know, he he, he wasn't involved at all. Um, you know, there's other players all across the the globe playing rugby um, who didn't get the opportunity to play. Um, but, you know, that I guess that's their prerogative. Um, but you know, in terms of forward playing, what a ten wants is you always want front foot ball because life becomes easy. Then I think you want your your forward carriers getting on the front foot, playing flat to the line, and being able to get over the gain line. Because um, if that does happen, you're in a constant stream, a constant cycle of the defence backtracking, and they can never fully set. So you can keep attacking them on top of them on the gain line, and then it feels like you're being overwhelmed as a defence because it's constant pressure. I think when you've got people like a Toji at you, then Launchbury, then you've got you know the um, Makovunapola. Phase after phase, you're backtracking, you're not getting time to reset, you can't get off the line. I think it then becomes quite overwhelming. And if you get that consistently in a game, you can almost feel like you're suffocating or there's nowhere to go. So I think if you can get that um, going with the, with the 9 and 10 and, and the 12, you know, moving forward, then, you know, I think that's the type of front football any fly half um, is going to want. Does the width matter? Where, you know, where, where they make, the, where they make the, the ground, where they, you know, make that significant advance over the game line? Do you want it close... As, as close as you can to the set piece, or does it? You just want it from front, front football. Come See, what may. I, a lot of it depends on whatever your framework is, or how you want to play. I think, for me, I think if you get front football, then you know all bets are off. Almost you're playing on top of teams, and you're constantly just pushing them back. You're constantly playing in 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 much better areas than you would be. You know, sometimes from an edge, you can't get front football, so you've got to find a point. So you want to try and split the field as best you can. So if you've got an edge and they've got a defensive line set up, and then they fly up. You might lose five metres, but then you get 20 metres from a sideline, which opens up both sides to attack. So then you, you've got the ball players that they have, you know, within that back line, you know, George Ford one side, Owen Farrell maybe the other side. And, you know, whether they play JJ or um, Henry Slade or 13, you know, you try and split them up and then you suddenly got two sides of the field to attack. Then you regain that momentum, get front football again. And then that's when you can start playing on top of teams again. So, you know, it, it all varies. If you can get front football and you consistently play on it, that's the perfect dream world. 
it's it's um it's not ideal to always be able to get that. But you know, once you do slow it down a touch, it's about restarting and trying to get front football. Okay, well, let's go um, and consider one of the other games: Wales twenty-one, Australia twenty-nine. And uh, I'm pleased to say we can we can speak to Star of a Welsh language pantomime. I can't. I, I, I thought this was photoshopped when it was given to me, <laughs> but I'm assured it's not. Is that the cover? I love it. Yeah, absolutely great. Is it <laughs> Nigel Owens as well? Um, they need to take it to Broadway. Sarah Elgin um, <laughs> and Shane Williams. Shane and the Golden Ball. Uh, yeah. Shane, Shane um, now, I hadn't necessarily thought you were uh, a lovey, but uh, we, I'm going to have to re- reappraise my uh, opinion of you, aren't I? <laughs> hey, there's an innuendo in that title as well, <laughs> by the way. But, um, <laughs> ah, look, yeah, it's, it, it's something I've, I've agreed to do, something different, completely out of the comfort zone. And, uh, look, it's, it's, it's tough and I'm more nervous about this than playing rugby, probably, <laughs> but it's it's going to be fun and you know with you know it's for charity as well so i'm looking forward to it um mainly in welsh but i'm told um some of the rugby players will be taking part in speaking english is it composed will 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 they understand will the audience understand most of it well you you will understand it it's uh, it's obviously it's for one night only in Talbot in the theater and and obviously it's welsh language so uh it, that's obviously very difficult to translate and so on but it, but it's also on in in um, on Christmas Day, I should say, should say as well, and there'll be there'll be subtitles, and it will be translated, so everyone can watch really. And um, uh, yeah, I hope I hope it translates okay as well. To be fair. Well, uh, let's go to another pantomime: the ongoing saga of Wales just not getting over the line um, against uh, Australia, and it, it was the virtually the same again. I, I, Wales just made too many mistakes early on, didn't they? And you know, against a side like Australia. Who have the uh, the developed knack now of putting chances away? You you can't do that. No, not not at all. I think um, uh, first and foremost, you know, it, it it was a young side. It was a it was a team that was being tried and tested. And I think you've got to look at the at the bench to to realise that. You know, only thirty seven caps on the bench. So the statement was, you know, we we're going to try some youngsters and we're going to try some inexperience and have a go at the, at the Aussies. And, and that's what they did. However, you could see that the, the intent was to play with width, to play with tempo and to play with a second receiver. And that's why Owen Williams was involved, who, who was very busy the first half. However, I think the, the problem was, you know, they, they tried offloading when they didn't need to. They were getting into good areas. They were knocking the ball on or just really losing that breakdown battle against the likes of Hooper and, the, and these players and uh, and made like you said made far too many errors in key in key areas of the field and at times you know they, they looked very confident with ball in hand but then they made a few silly passes and, and knock-ons and were getting hit behind the gain line and the problem for me was they tried playing in, in, in areas in which they didn't really have to play there was I don't know how many times they lost the ball in their own 22 and you know, almost led to to, to points for 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 Australia. So a little bit bit naive in that sense, really. But you know, some good performances, some good individual performances. However, it's still another loss. Do you think? Uh, I mean, with Georgia coming up, and then you know, another of the big two uh, in world rugby. How much room is there, and will Gatland be? Uh, looking to rotate and, uh, and 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 find out more about the wider squad. Well, he, he's definitely gonna gonna try and find out the, uh, the wider squad. I think um, you know the, the danger is you know you, you're, you're playing a side like George, and I don't know that much about them. You know they are a side in which we should win, and the problem is sometimes, and what's happened in the past is that right, okay, this is the time to blood some guys and, and change the team around. It doesn't always have to be that, and it's a little bit different this time because against Australia. It was it was already uh, an inexperienced team. There were already a few new combinations being tri- tried and tested, and a lot of uh, you know um, inexperience coming off the bench. Uh, so you know, you know, for me, I think uh, Warren Gatlin's got to go with the same team. He's got to tr- he's, he, again, he's got to go with Owen Williams because in patches in that game he was very good. 
but he kind of drifted in and out of the game far too often for international rugby. So he needs that experience again. I thought Stefan Evans, despite, you know, he did make a mistake and, and Kirtley Beale ripped the ball and scored that try. I thought he was superb. He worked so hard. He worked all around the field. And you could see that Australia were really worried about what he had to offer and he took the try very well. So there are players that really do need to be tried and tested again, especially against Georgia, because they'll have a bit more ball in hand, they'll have a few more opportunities. And really at this level, it's all about gaining our confidence and moving on and then preparing for the likes of New Zealand and South Africa. Yeah, I, I, hi Shane, how you doing? Hey Dan, how's it going? Yeah, good. Um, I thought um, the, the left winger, uh, Steffi, he, look, he looked awesome out there. Um, do you feel like that Wales got caught up in the moment in terms of, you know, they have a lot of young, exciting players and they were just sort of, you know, excited and exhilarated to go out there and play as opposed to play the team or play the conditions or play the situation as opposed to actually, you know, yeah. you know, setting down and really sort of analysing what to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, and, and it's it's very easy to to do really and I've been there myself where you get caught up in it all and you're playing at home in front of 70,000 people. You know this may be your first and your last opportunity to impress the gaffer and the coaches and, and everyone in Wales. And sometimes you do, you try a little bit too hard and you make mistakes and then, you know, perhaps again, you know, you, you make another mistake and then you just you start to question what you're doing. But yeah, there was a case of that, I think. But all in all, I, I, I was really pleased with, with, with the young lads that came, you know, came and did yeah, the business. Far more positives. Yes, definitely. Far more positive than the old Sean, the, the negatives. And, you know, Stefan Evans, um, he, he took his try very well. He worked. I kept an eye on him because... I, I knew he's a good player. He's been playing really well for the Scarlets, yeah. and I just wanted to keep an eye on his on his work rate and, and what he was doing, and hoping that he wasn't going to do anything different to what he did in the Scarlets. And he didn't disappoint. You know, he worked his socks off for, for the period of time he was on the field. Okay, you know, Curtly Beale scored that try, but you, you could see he, you know, he was really enjoying himself out there. The likes of Josh Navidi as well, who was playing against probably one of the best Sams in the world, yeah, sure. really had a steady game. You know, they didn't. There were, there were times where there was a little offload when, where there didn't need to be an offload or they were trying something a little bit too clever and a bit too smart. However, all in all, I thought the youngsters were superb. And I think, you know, having watched that game and looked at the experience the Australia team had, not once did I think, oh my God, you know, we're really being overrun here. We're really being outplayed. You know, two of the tries Australia scored were from mistakes. Yeah, 100%. The rest, the rest you know, the Welsh defence was superb, I thought. And they were a little bit unlucky. Well, Shane, um, let's hope that you can reclaim the golden ball from the evil <laughs> Mr. Cosby and that the uh, assistance of Miss Kick and Auntie Dot will be enough. Uh, I've got, yeah. You've got to come back and speak to us when, you, when you've gone through this experience, just to tell yeah. us how, how it was. I'm not going to live this down, am I? <laughs> Good luck, man. Good luck, mate, especially luck. for charity. Cheers, Thanks, guys. mate. Let's move on now to uh, Ireland who played South Africa, and I'm pleased to say we can speak to the former Springbok, Tinas Delport. Hello, Tinas. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Okay. Now, with the Springboks, it was a case of, is it getting to the stage where, you know, which Springbok team turns up? Because over the, uh, you know, the, 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 the Four Nations tournament and so on, you, you've had some really good performances, very close games, you know, and seemingly turned the corner, and then you get... Uh, this was a hammering, really. I mean, the way that Ireland came and were allowed to come at, uh, at the Springboks, did, did that surprise you? Yeah, I think we always expected Ireland to come up with something different uh, to what the Springboks expect. Um, they did the similar, similar tactics in the, in the previous game they played in, uh, a year or so ago in terms of not engaging in a driving mall. So doing things that are, are unsettles the South African players and... You know, uh, unfortunately, South Africans, uh, where the collective confidence of the team is now, they don't really handle change very well um, on on the pitch. So you throw something in that's um, not expected, and and suddenly, you know, suddenly the um, the Springboks heads drop. And um, I think the before the game, prior to the game, in the in the lead up to the game, we knew that there was going to be an aerial attack. Uh, that the back three, the inexperience of the back three, was always targeted. But I think the big surprise. Um, was up front where um, I think the Springboks expected not just parity but probably a little bit of ascendancy up in the pack and I thought the Irish pack fronted up fantastically well um, in terms of the driving mall, in terms of the scrum which was um, 
which was very affected. Unfortunately for South Africa, the, the loss of Kuni Oosthuizen and back from injury just after a minute was, was totally unsettling. But the, the, the hard press on the defensive line and the work rate um, of guys like Ian Henderson was fantastic. And I think that's what really unsettled South Africa, combined with the pressure that they were able to put on uh, through effective kicking. Hi, Tinas. It's Danny here. Hi, Dan. How are you right? Yeah, very good, man. Um, how difficult is it for the coach when, you know, is it you can't really pick all the players that you want to be picking at the time? I, I know it's a, a difficult subject to talk on, but, you know, when you've got Faf de Klerk, Vili LaRue and Vimulin all available, but they can't get picked, is that in a position of, you know, where are you starting from in that basis? Because for me, all three of those start, and that's a, a core of the side. That's your, you know, 8, 9 and 15. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, Brian said about is it is it a question of which team Springbok teams up it turns up. I think it's more of which team actually gets selected. You look at the quality of players that are now based overseas. Um, you know, you mentioned Vili, Dwayne, um, Faf de Klerk. They they loads in France, loads in Ireland. Uh, and now applying their trade all over the world, and and I think that is the the, the real big concern. Com, you know, combine that with a couple of other factors that play part in uh, South African selection, and you know, it is very difficult for the team to be able to front up uh, on a on a weekly basis. So, you know, it's, it it is a massive concern, and um, you know, to find the answer for for this is 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 going to take a lot of. Um, a lot of thinking because it's it's about dealing with the with the economy in South Africa the the poor exchange rate the exchange rate keep falling so you know I see today it's it's turning uh, you know the exchange rate is turning 19 rand to the pound so you know the the draw of the euro the pound the yen is always going to be so much stronger so young players or even established players you look at these guys that have probably in that just uh, you know in that um, field where they've played less than 30, 30 tests, um, they are looking to come overseas. You know, you, you, I saw today um, Ruan Janssen van Rensburg uh, signing a short-term stint at, at sale. And, you know, for me, he would have been, uh, in my opinion, if I was coach, I would have, I would have started him and, and, and brought him along on the tour because he does offer something a little bit different to, to especially what the, the current centre combination does, which, you know, we saw on the weekend did not really inspire any attacking flair. Um, you know, it was, was quite boring to watch, to be fair. Uh, Tina, you know, rugby, in some ways, is still a relatively simple game. And for me, halfbacks are absolutely pivotal by the nature of, obviously, where they play. But not just in terms of when you go forward, but also the decisions they make when on the back foot. You know, do they make things worse? Do they play in the right areas? And it seems to me that currently the Springbok halfbacks, are, you know, Tremendous going forward can be, but when the pressure comes on, not as not as good, not as experienced, and there is a big problem. Oh, a huge problem! You know, just compare the the performances of Conor Murray and, and Johnny Sexton. Um, but unfortunately, Cronier Yankees time and time again have shown that when they are under pressure in in pressure cookie environments, they they just don't seem to to function and front up. You look at the uh, the Hurricanes playing the Lions in the Super Rugby final last season. Uh, this season in the Crusaders um, at home, they weren't able um, to deal with that pressure. But it's not just the nine ten. You know, the the twelve. You know, is, is such an instrumental key decision maker to alleviate a little bit of pressure. And you ask Danny um, if he has, you know, if he has a twelve on the, you know, next to him that can actually distribute, can can make uh, decisions in terms of uh, putting relieving pressure through his own kicks. You not just rely on the nine and ten. You know, tie that in with the fifteen. That's also just finding his uh, finding his feet. Um, the other, the big concern for me is that both the ten and fifteen are left-footed kickers. So um, we don't actually have a right-footed kicking option um, apart from Ross Cronier, who's the nine. So you can't actually start playing the corners and looking at a real kicking strategy if you have two left-footers. Ideally, you want a left-footer, right-footer um, at ten, twelve, which can really control the game, but. You know, we we not we're not able to have that kicking game that can control, especially um, this time of the year, uh, the weather conditions and 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 the defences that's been put up us, uh, you know, in in front of the Springbok players because they're not used to um, a strong defensive press uh, in in the Super Rugby and in the Southern Hemisphere. 
Well, Tinas, uh, it doesn't necessarily get easier because uh, um, the French at least are very, you know, very powerful. So we'll see what uh, what transpires there. Thank you very much. Cheers, Brian. Cheers, Danny. Thank Thanks you. OK, the laws of the game are not necessarily uh, straightforward, uh, but we are fortunate to have top international referee who can explain the ins and outs to us. It's uh, Nigel Owen. Nigel, hello. Brian, good evening. How are you? Now, what are you... <laughs> just very quickly, because... Sharing the golden ball. You're not the ball, are you? <laughs> I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the genie. So I'm looking forward to who's going to be coming rubbing me to get their wish. Do you get to sing? Um, I don't know. Um, Rios, I'm due to Rios now um, this week and, and on Sunday when I'm, I'm out in Paris on the weekend doing France, South Africa. And when I come back on Sunday, then I'm in rehearsal then all day Sunday when I get home and stuff. So uh, I've read the script and stuff, so I don't really know what much about it until until Sunday, uh, until we get into, into, into rehearsals, really. Well, I, I thought you might have been one of the dames, but let, that's just me. You know. Well, that's for the future. I'm looking forward. That's just been, <laughs> it's been a lifelong ambition of mine, so I hope one day I'll get the chance. Yeah. Oh, good, mate. Look, uh, well, good luck in that, especially it's for charity um, Danny and I were uh, discussing bits and pieces and I know that you know contractually you're not allowed to talk about your own or other people's uh, decisions but let, let's let's clear this up um, with high balls and, and so on to what what is the the law because I'm still slightly confused about the, the sanctions to what extent does the way in which a player lands uh, intent or anything like that have on the outcome uh, and the decision that the officials will make when a, okay. when a ball um, is contested? The, 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 the first thing here is that the referee will decide, first of all, if there's been foul play. Now, that's the first thing. So if there's been no foul play, then you're in a, in a play-on situation because there's nothing happened, collisions happen, uh, and there's no foul play, so then there's nothing to address. So that's the first thing the referee will decide. Um, when he decides there is foul play, uh, he then goes on different merits of, of what has happened, how has happened. But I, I'd like to stress this first of all. If there is an act of willful, reckless, careless, foul play, whatever it is, it's irrelevant of how the player lands, for example. So if you jump in the air and somebody runs underneath you, one just runs underneath you, takes you out in the air or even tackles you in the air, and we've seen a couple of them over the sort of past few months and, and last season or two, it's irrelevant of how that player lands, whether that player lands literally as safe as you possibly could on your backside or your back away from the sort of neck and head older head area, which is deemed to be the most dangerous of landing. So irrelevant of how that player will land, if the act was a deliberate, willful, careless, reckless act of foul play in taking somebody out in the air, that means that that player will all probability get a red card irrelevant of how the guy lands. So let's take it now then to the next stage then, where the foul players deemed to be a mistiming, uh, an act of carelessness rather than a willful act of taking somebody out in the air or an absolute reckless act. So if it's deemed to be the next level down, really, um, a, a bit of mistiming or whatever, but it's still deemed to be foul play, then you take into account what happens next. Did the player, where the player landed, and you take that into account, and then the section, uh, the sanction merits then on, on that. The other thing you take into account as well then is if there was um, a mistiming or an act of foul play, is there any, anything else that's contributed to it? So, for example, was the player that went to jump for the ball, was he taken out by another player? Was he obstructed or held back, which you know, caused what or contributed to what happened? So there's a lot of various things that the referee takes into account. So the referee will take into how the players landed um, on the act of, of foul play, but also as well, a red card can be given, irrelevant to the landing, if, if the referee warrants that the act was, was, was reckless and, uh, and a clear act of foul play in taking somebody out in the air. So there's a lot of different things you take into account, really. Hi, hi Nigel, it's Danny. How you doing? Hi, Danny, how are you? You are? Yeah, very good. I, I think, um, am I right in saying one of the, the, the things are, if people go up for the ball and if someone's competing with it, it's your responsibility on how that person lands? Um. It's your responsibility if you tackle the person. So if you tackle somebody and you lift him off the ground to, to drive him back, for example, then 
you have a responsibility then in how the player comes down and how you bring him down, unless it's a dynamic. So sometimes you tackle somebody, you lift them off the ground and you drive them backwards and it's a good dynamic tackle, then, then that to me, that's play on. But if you lift somebody off the ground, then in, a, in more of a, um, a standing tackle than a dynamic, dynamic driving somebody back, then you have a responsibility how you bring some, someone down. Now, when you're in the air competing for the ball, there's two different situations. Yes, if you are late, reckless, you're in no position to compete for the ball, then you will take into responsibility of what happens to the player and how he lands. But if you have made a genuine attempt for the ball and the both of you are contesting for that ball and you're doing nothing wrong then there's not much you can do how the player lands. It's just sometimes the collision happens that way. So the referee would need to judge then, you know, was it a genuine contest for the ball? Uh, Were you in a realistic position to catch the ball? And he takes all that into account, really. So the more of the way the player comes down is more to do with when you're actually in control lifting him. But then there's another type of responsibility when you compete in the air that you need to be sure of your actions. My advice to be is if you're running for the ball and a player goes up in the air then if you've got any doubt whether you're going to be able to compete for that ball, then you, you pull back out of it. Let that player catch the ball, let him land, and then you can get over the ball and, and possibly win a penalty or tackle him after he's come to ground. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, what, what would your, you know, your advice be on this? Because it seems to be over the last couple of years, you know, in a lot of big games, in a lot of important games, these decisions have you know, swung, uh, whether it be good or bad, and in players getting yellow-carded, red-carded, whatever it may be. You know, it seems like it's more frequent than it was, say, five, six, seven years ago. So uh, you're, you're right there. It certainly was more frequent until, I would say, probably about eight months, 12 months ago. Where I, I think, in all fairness, uh, under the guidance of, of, of Alan Roland, who, who's done a good job here, I think, in, in, the, in dealing with the contact of the head and, and the takeouts in the air, and Joel Jute did the same before him as well, is we've gone in hard as referees on players who go up in the air and then fail to compete with that ball and cause whatever happens to next. And we've gone in hard with that. So what's happened as a a result of that? I think players now are more aware of, right, I'm not going to get to this ball, so I need to pull out here, wait for the guy to come down, and then I can tackle him or get over the ball. And that seems to be happening more. We certainly have a lot less of these tip tackles, contacts in the air than we did have 10 10, 8, 10 months ago. So, so my advice would be is, look, if you're going to go for that ball and you're going up for the ball and you've got a realistic chance of competing and winning that ball, then yes, go for it. But if you've got any doubt that that player has got up before you and now by putting yourself in the air, you're not going to get in a position to catch that ball or compete for that ball and you are going to cause this player to whatever happens next, then I would think twice about pulling out and, uh, and putting yourself in a safer position or otherwise you're going to have to take the consequences really. Well, Nigel, um, good looking Shane in the Golden Ball. I, I'm sure that it will either be live stream, screen, streamed by Periscope it, or um, some it other. Will be, uh, I think it's on SOC uh, over, oh. over Christmas, Brian. So um, I'll send you a copy with Please subtitles do. so you can sit down and watch it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Cheers, Nigel. All the best. All Thanks the best, you, boys. Mate. Goodbye. Time now to switch codes to turn to a rugby league, which is in the middle of a World Cup. And, uh, well, England are still in there. Very pleased to say I can chat through all this with Phil Kaplan, the editor of the 4020 magazine. Hello, Phil. Hello, how are you? Well, England have got there. That was expected, though, wasn't it? Uh, yes, I think so, and, and they've yet to put together a full 80-minute performance, but it's never a bad thing when you can beat France 36-6 and not be satisfied. Getting out of the group was the priority. They um, they really took Australia close in the first game. I think the, the second half of that for 39 minutes was as well as an England team have played against Australia in recent memory. They did the job against Lebanon. It wasn't very pretty, but that was enough to, to make sure they were going to be in the quarterfinals. That gave the coach, Wayne Bennett, the chance to play all of his squad against France. Pretty comprehensive. Uh, but the real work starts now with, with Papua New Guinea in Melbourne this weekend. Uh, one of the things that uh, I noticed which was very encouraging in the Australia game was that you know, they've played the whole game, they finished relatively strongly, but that seemed not to happen you know, in the uh, game against France and to a certain extent against uh, uh, Lebanon. What, what do you put that down to? I think it's partly to do with the fact that you don't want to play your best rugby in the group stages. You have to 
play your combination, but you also have to give everybody you take on tour a chance to play some part in every game. I, I think from a ra- morale point of view, even more than a, than a combinations point of view. But I think Wayne Bennett has known his best team that he was going to play when, when they reached the quarterfinals right from the word go. Uh, I think, obviously, Sam Burgess getting injured in the game against Australia threw that out slightly, but he'll be back this weekend will make a massive difference. Even against Australia, he couldn't play Alex Wormsley off the bench, which is what he'd originally planned to do. And, and his size and, and the way he would have taken on the Australian pack, that now comes into play in these latter stages. So the, the key men that he wants in the key positions are fit, which is all you would ask for. I think he'll revert back to almost the team that we saw start the tournament against Australia from here on in. Uh, I think one or two of the players against France were given an opportunity and perhaps didn't stake enough of a claim to say, alter your original thinking on this. And, and actually, the, we haven't talked about it yet, but the most significant result for International Rugby League in living memory was Tonga beating New Zealand this mm-hmm. weekend. First time that a Tier 2 nation has ever beaten a Tier 1 nation in a World Cup. Um, off the field, that now gives some, that unlocks some doors for international rugby league. That if rugby league is clever enough to take it, has never had before. Um, I think the the decision by two of the world's leading players to elect to play for Tonga rather than uh, New Zealand or Australia has not only made Tonga more competitive, but almost demands more international fixtures in a structured manner because we've seen how competitive they are. But let's forget all of that for the moment. It changes the dynamic for how England might get to the World Cup final. Mm -hmm. Uh, They now cannot play New Zealand. Australia has to play New Zealand in the semi-final if they manage to get to that stage. England after PNG, which I would anticipate they would beat this weekend, um, as the Cummels have been magnificent in Port Moresby, but it's slightly different playing in Melbourne. England would then face Tonga in a semi-final in Auckland. And I don't think that's a scenario we'd thought of before we went there. And, and that does, without taking anything for granted, Tonga were magnificent in the second half against New Zealand. Arguably one of the best 40 minutes of rugby we've seen from any team uh, in any competition. But if England are looking at a potential route through to Brisbane on the 2nd of December to have Tonga standing in your way rather than New Zealand, it's a slightly different dynamic. Well, I mean, we're presuming that they will beat Lebanon, but that's almost a given, given the way that they've been playing, surely. I think Lebanon have been absolutely battered. I mean, they've been in a group where uh, they've done superbly to, to emerge from that. Their big game was against France in the first round. They won that, which ensured their qualification for the uh, this quarterfinal stage. But they then had to play England, followed by Australia. And I think their coach, Brad Fittler, who is, is a wise old bird, was saying that, you know, physically they're absolutely battered. So to then go and play another huge team in Tonga that are coming off this astonishing result against New Zealand, I, I think, you know, we tip our hats to Lebanon, but that, that's Tonga's to lose, and I can't see them doing that. And I think PNG have been a breath of fresh air, playing at home in front of full stadiums. Unbelievable colour the pitches have been coming back with the the, the painted faces and, and the, the cultural dances. But you take PNG out of Port Moresby and put them in a slightly cooler Melbourne, and they make the same number of mistakes that they've been making against the nations that they've been playing they won't get away with that against England. So I think we are looking at a Tonga-England semi-final in Auckland, which will be absolutely phenomenal. Well, Danny Spetz was very candid after the uh, game against France, said uh, we're not happy, when Bennett, the coach, is not happy, the players are not happy. So one of the things he's got to look at, he was rotating, but you know, one or two people who, who perhaps didn't, as you say, push their case hard enough, but one possibly who did, was Gareth Widdop. Now, yes. full-back, fly-half? I suspect that Wayne Bennett always wanted the combination of Luke Gale and Gareth Widdop in the halves because you're talking about the Dally M halfback of the year in Australia, in Widdop, uh, who plays his club rugby over there. You're talking about Luke Gale being the man of steel over here. I think that's a combination you want to keep together, particularly at these pressure moments. You don't get those personal accolades unless you are very, very good um, at what you do in your decision-making when it really matters. He also has a liking for the way Johnny Lomax plays at fullback, and I still seem to think that if Lomax hadn't pulled a calf muscle, we would have seen him playing in that position at least one of these other games. And uh, he just offers something different. Wayne Bennett is is somebody who is incredibly loyal to a group of players that he thinks can do the job. And 
for whatever reason, he actually sees Johnny Lomax as his fullback. Now, St Helens are going to move him from there to play Ben Barber in that position. We saw that at the end of the, the last Super League season. But I think Bennett likes the footwork of Lomax. He's slightly unpredictable. He's a little bit unorthodox. And I, I think that outlet at the back, allied to, we have to say, two of the best wingers in the competition. Jermaine McGilvery has been absolutely outstanding for England. He's already put his name down, I think, as one of the players of the tournament. And Ryan Hall on the other side, who is proven at international level. If you've got a back three of two wingers that can win you um, a position up the field and, and a full-back who's slightly unorthodox, you can ally that to your two half-backs who the more they play together, the more they're going to click. You've then got your hooking situation across the spine of the team where you've got Josh Hodgson who's playing in the NRL with Canberra who's a more physical player and you can bring James Roby off the bench who his dynamism changed that game against Australia and I think you want that playing PNG, playing against Tonga and if you get to the final playing against Australia and New Zealand. I think you've then got uh, the, the spine of a team with Sean O'Loughlin locking it all in at loose forward that Wayne Bennett likes and he's not going to deviate much from that, I don't think. Well, they've coped without Sam Burgess. Is there any chance at all that he might rest him, put him on the bench to start with or, or not? No, I think he'll play him and he'll play him as a wide-ranging second rower rather than up front where he's played most of the club career for, for South this year. And I think, again, that gives them a different attacking dimension and gives Sam a bit more freedom to get uh, involved where he thinks he can make more of a difference. I also think that uh, Sam's footballing ability just on the fringes of the ruck uh, gives another dimension. If we if we are ever going to beat Australia or New Zealand in a meaningful game, then we have to be slightly unpredictable. We have to throw things at them that they don't see on a week to week basis that they can cope with. And having Sam playing wider, using his ball skills, running onto the ball with the power and the pace that he's got, then that's a different dimension. Um, he's, he's slightly wasted in the front row because you don't see the best of everything he can do with the ball in his hands. And I think he enjoys it as well. And if Sam Burgess is enjoying himself, then you've got a real threat on your hands. We've presumed that the other semi-final will be Australia and New Zealand. Australia take on Samoa, New Zealand take on Fiji. Now, it seems to me that both the island sides will put up uh, a fight for a reasonable amount. You can't tell exactly where. But in the end, the... Uh, more established powers, they, they surely just have too much. And uh, as you say, the, 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 many of the sides are, are bruised and battered. And I would put Samoa and Fiji in that category. I think you would with Samoa. And, and they've been disappointing in the group stage. And, and uh, we must pay credit to Scotland, who held them to a 14-all draw with barely a team to put on the park. Fantastic tribute to their coach, Steve McCormack, who um, has carried Scotland Rugby League as their head coach for a number of years, gets the best out of the players that he's got. We all know about the three that were sent home. And, and to get a reaction from the guys that he, he still had there to draw with Samoa and very nearly pinch that game was incredible. And I think that shows that perhaps Samoa aren't at that level. And playing in Darwin as well against Australia in a packed stadium, which all be going for the home side, I'd I, I can't see Australia losing that. The interesting one is New Zealand and Fiji because Fiji have been absolutely superb in the group stages, scored 168 points. They are the leading point scorer in the competition. They've got a real balance to their team. Um, I, I, I think a young um, back division, they've got a couple of players in there, Siliciano Vunivalu, who is the, uh, the leading try scorer. He has been absolutely phenomenal as a finisher. Uh, they've got a youngster called Tane Milne inside him, but moving Jared Hayne to halfback has been the key that's unlocked the brilliance in the Fijian team. We know they're big up front and can play. We know that they had guys out wide that could score. What they didn't have was the link. And moving Hayne has been an absolute masterstroke. And I would say that the New Zealanders coming off that defeat against Tonga, uh, we don't know how psychologically that's going to affect them. The pressure is now on them. Fiji have got to the last two World Cup semi-finals uh, in 2008 and 2013. This is the game of the quarter-final. I don't think that's necessarily a given. Um, but the other side of that coin, New Zealand are playing very well as well. It wasn't that they necessarily lost to Tonga. It was that Tonga found a way to beat them. And New Zealand were playing very well at halftime, leading 16-2. This is one that's almost too close to call, to be honest. But I still expect Australia playing New Zealand in Brisbane in the semi-final. And that one I wouldn't like to call at the moment. Well, Wayne Bennett uh, called for an error-free performance against France. Let's hope that they get nearer to that uh, council of perfection when they play Papua New Guinea at the weekend. Thank you very much, Phil. No problem.
let's just briefly uh, mention Scotland. Um, a good win, uh, irrespective of the fact that they conceded you know, 38 points against Samoa. Now they've got New Zealand coming up. The way that they're trying to play the openness and what have you, I you know, fear that against a side like New Zealand, if you play that way, you're, you're, they're just, they're just going to score more points. Can you see uh, any other outcome than a New Zealand win? I think it's tough against anyone right now playing against New Zealand to see anything but a New Zealand win, especially after you know a consistent amount of games but behind them. But you know, I think Scotland. I think the approach of Wigger Townsend. I think you know, led by Finn Russell. I think they're going to be smart enough to know when to play, uh, what 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 to play, and if it's if it's the right time to play. Um, so I think you know things will get adjusted. To obviously, to playing who against the opposition are. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, but they'll definitely cause them a, 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 with a lot of threats around the park for Scotland. And I think it'll be exciting to go fight fire with fire. So, you know, I think that'll definitely be one of the games of the weekend to watch. And we all, uh, and I'm, I agree with you, just the fact that it is Australia and the fact that uh, you'll have Itoji returning and you'll have Farrell returning, England will play a lot better, undoubtedly. The, the, I don't have any uh, qualms about that. But, you know, Australia are a very canny side. They carry the ball well with variety up front but England are at home um, What? how do you see it playing out uh, the weekend? I think Australia are a different team to what they faced over in Australia um, was it last season um, in, in, the, in the July mm. test mm. Uh, but I do think England have, have also developed over that 12 months you know just as much which make them a very tough um, proposition uh, I think you know. I think Kurtley Kurtley Beale at fullback. He, you know, he, he's he's in a, a very dynamic and um, free role to be able to roam and do what he wants. And you know, he's a dangerous player in that fashion, and he's a big player for them. But you know, I think you can't look too far beyond you know England at the minute because I think you know after the weekend's performance, they'll dust themselves off, get back out there, and you know, come speaking to the boys that are involved in the squad. Um, you know, the expectation. You know. You know how good that they want to be, where they want to get to. You know the comments that Eddie Jones is saying to individual players. You know I think it's going to get the boys up into a position where, you know, you, it's not going to be anything but you know a, a full-hearted and, and intense performance. And with that, you've got the right ball players, the skill set within that group to go out there and execute. So I think it will uh, it will be a great game to watch, and I think you know that will probably be the game of the weekend for sure. Well, I mean, I think it's important for England because they. We'll want to see exactly where they are. We know what the world rankings say, but you know this is the instant uh, competition, and we'll see if they've kicked on. You know, f- not just from uh, the players who were blooded in Argentina, but as a squad. Okay, that's all we've got time for. You've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with Telegraph. Thank you very much to my co-host Danny Cipriani, and as always, my producer Abby Patterson. Remember to subscribe to the podcast because, after all, it's completely free, and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. Brian Moore's Full Contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.